If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Matthew chapter 27 um, this morning, and uh, I pray that I can do this passage justice. Um, I also pray that we can get through it because uh, your pastor decided to pick about 55 verses to get through in about 30 minutes, and uh, that's impossible. Uh, So uh, we're going to kind of hit an aerial view of this uh, important, important passage known as the crucifixion story. This is the pinnacle of Christ's uh, life. This is why he came, was in order to die for us. And uh, I want to kind of just put the main point out first, and that is this. We must force ourselves to slow, to see the slow and painful emptying of Jesus. I think that's the first thing we need to do this morning, is we need to force ourselves to, slow, to see the slow and painful emptying of Jesus, knowing that he alone can cause us to do the same kind of emptying of ourselves on a daily basis. To say it another way, that we would see the love of Christ for humanity displayed in the shameful journey to the cross. And I chose the word shameful here for a reason. Um, as Flemling Rulage says in his book, The Crucifixion, which I've been reading um, up into this, this passage or this text this morning, amazing, amazing book on just the crucifixion and why the cross. He says this, Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central focus the suffering and degradation of its God. Christianity is unique in the fact that we are the only ones that truly believe that God would come down in human form and suffer on our behalf. Other ones would see God as not as too holy to do that, and we are the only religion that would say, man, we, we value a God who came down on our behalf. The Gospels all highlight different pieces of the crucifixion, And uh, Matthew is one in particular who does the same. But as they focus on different pieces of the crucifixion, some will focus more on the human weakness of Christ as he went to the cross. Others will focus on the divine power of Christ at the cross. Mark, being the fastest, most pointed, goes to the suffering. Matthew and Luke kind of blend the two. And finally, John will focus primarily on the divinity side of the cross. However, what what we're getting at this morning is that all the Gospels All of the Gospels, however, will not tell you the entirety of the gruesome details of the crucifixion. None of the Gospels will tell you the physical anguish and pain that Christ went through on our behalf as he went to the cross. And this morning, I don't even want to focus on the physical. I want to do the Gospels justice this morning and focus on what they wanted to focus on, which is, as I said before, the shameful journey to the cross. Um, we're going to focus on 27 in Matthew, a long passage that, again, I can't do justice through the whole thing, but this series is an overview of Jesus, and as we look at Matthew 27, I want to remind us of how we started this series. We said that as we look at 27 and as we go to the Gospels, as we look at this shameful journey to the cross, my hope in this series is that we would know Jesus better, that was our first thing, that we would head knowledge, know who he is, that, he would trans- be, that we would be transformed by that knowledge, and then we would live like him. It was funny, last week, um, I knew Adam was preaching, and, and we didn't really communicate ahead of, it, ahead of time. And Adam's the guy that I love, uh, that he comes out here all the time. He, I tell him all the time, I'm trying to steal him from Maranatha. He knows it full well. So every time he comes out, I'm like, how'd it go? How was it? You want to be here, right? Uh, and so I keep trying to steal him away. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, but uh, I love the guy. I think he's fantastic. He's leading groups over there. But um, I love that uh, he actually went into this idea of knowing, transforming, and living on mission as he kind of ended the sermon last week. And I thought, 
Ah, it's working. This is good. So just be praying for that. Just be fine, small thing. Just move him this way. If he listens to this audio, he'll, he'll, he'll get a kick out of it. Um, but uh, that's my hope in this series, that we'd know and transform and we would live like him. Uh, and that's my hope today as well, that as we look at this passage, we would know more about Christ, we'd be transformed by him, and hopefully that we would live like him. And so this morning again, We must force ourselves to see the slow and painful emptying of Jesus, knowing that he alone can cause us to do the same. And we must ask, what does this passage in particular help me know about Jesus? How will the Spirit, through the Word, transform me through this passage? And how will this passage help me live more like Jesus? And so let's start with those three things that get summed up, I believe, in one verse. And so as we look at Matthew 27, as we look at the shameful journey, I believe there's one verse that kind of encompasses all of Matthew 27, written by the Apostle Paul to a church plant in Philippi. So let me read this. So if there is any encouragement, Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, or 1 through 8, I'm going to focus on the end. But so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he's telling us, hey, I want you to all focus on one thing. Point your minds to one thing. And this is what he wants to point us to. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among you, this is crazy, having this mind among you, and this is important, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that. This is a side note. This is a rabbit trail, so stick with me for a second. He says, have the same mind of Christ, which is in you. So, so you don't have to reach far. You just have to ask Christ. I want your mind. I want to think how you think. He says that having the same mind, which is in you, in Christ, who though he was born in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, key phrase, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, big asterisk at the end, even death on a cross. So visually this morning, this is what it would look like. All of Matthew 27, 11 to 13, 15 to 23, 27 to 31, 32 to 44, all of them are, are wrapped up in Philippians chapter 2. All of these, you're going to see the emptying and the obedience of Jesus Christ as he goes to the cross on our behalf. And for many of us, we know this story well, but I pray this morning we'd see it through the same, I wouldn't say we want to see it through a new lens. I want to say we see it through a fresh lens that just reminds us as a reminder of what he has done. There's nothing going to be pulled out new in this passage, but it is a good reminder of Christ and what he has done for us on our behalf as he empties himself as he goes to the cross. So let's begin in verse 11 of chapter 27. Christ has had the Last Supper. We talked about that last week when Adam was here. And and this week, uh, we we find that he is now, the supper is over. Judas is now gone. He has hung himself. He is, uh, the guilt has caught up with him. And he is now out of the picture. And Christ is now fully on the way to the cross. Before he gets there, we read in verse 11 that he stands before the governor, and this governor's name is Pilate. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you king of the Jews? 
That was the accusation the Jews were bringing against him, is that he is claiming to be king. He is claiming to be God, and we don't want him as either one. Are you king of the Jews, Jesus said. You have said so, but when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. So in other words, he asked, are you king of the Jews? The, 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 the Pharisees and others who are trying to crucify him are going crazy in the background, trying to get him to answer, trying to get him to say, yes, he, he said that. Yes, he did that. Then Pilate said to him, do you hear how many things they testify against you? That's crazy. The son of God who came on our behalf, the one who created the world, the one who created Pilate, the one who said, I am the one who is to come and, and, and the prophecy fulfilled from Isaiah to now is standing in front of a makeshift mock kind of ruler who thinks he has some kind of authority as the Roman governor. But only authority given to Pilate was given to the man standing to his left. And it was Jesus Christ himself. And the one who had all the power is letting this guy in front of him mock and berate. And he's letting these others say things about him that are untrue. And the Pharisees and those around him, he says, do you hear how many things they testify against you? They're just slandering him and saying all these things against him. But verse 14, but he gave no answer, not even a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. You see, the first part of shame is this idea of meekness. It's power under control. Whenever you've been shamed, whenever somebody says something about you, we as a culture have a uh, propensity to retaliate in some form, especially when we think of online. Our culture has grown in this idea of shame. Shame was nothing new in the New Testament, and I'll get to that later. But in our culture today, we have this like, this fascination with offense and, and are we being offended by what somebody's saying, particularly online. I was listening to a barista the other day. I was working on a, um, I think it was a sermon or something earlier in the week. And I went to the coffee shop to get some coffee and I was listening to what the conversation behind the bar and, and a couple of things they were talking about. He was just going on and on and on about the things he was posting online and, and, and it's his platform and, and how, and how like nobody's responding to his platform and the ones that are responding are just being really, really mean. And, and I don't even know if I want to go back, but I will go back and I will share some things because I need my point to be out there. And it was just like, he was very visibly hurt and shaken by what was being spoke about him online. And my thought, and I don't know if this is mean or not, but my thought was like, you have the choice to shut that off, don't you? I mean, you have the choice to just be like, I don't need an account or I don't need to respond. But, but I think in our culture, we've, we've grown attached to these social media things that have just been able to just run our world. And I felt bad for him afterwards because his whole world is being run by other people he has no connection with. And the shame that was there and the accusations were brought against him. He had no idea how to handle it. And he's retaliating with his friends and trying to build his case. And you think of Jesus Christ in the middle of the situation and things that are being brought against him and things that are yelled at him and things that are said about him. And, and he just stands quiet. Can I just say that is the hardest thing to do when somebody's dragging your name through whatever it is. When, when somebody's saying something against you. To those middle schoolers in the room who, who, who you feel like, man, I've, I've, I'm there. I'm there every single day. My friends say things about me. I hear things about myself all the time. Let me just share what helped me with a friend of mine. He says, whenever somebody starts to really just go at you and start to kind of attack you, you know what you need to do? I'm like, yeah, you need to punch them in the face. That's what you need to do. He's like, no, no, no. You just need to be quiet. You just need to just let it happen and just say thank you. And I'm like, that's so weird. That would never work. And this kid got picked on a ton, right? I mean, a ton. 
And so I watched him on the bus. I mean, they would grab him. They would, you know, grab his shirt. There's a couple times he actually got spit on. I mean, it was a bad deal, right? And every time he got off the bus, he would just stand quiet in the midst of his accusers, and he would just be like, thank you. And it drove them insane. They couldn't get to him. They said things, and they tried to get him to react and tried to get him to react. And every time, he's just like, thank you, and just walked off the bus and I'm like, oh my gosh, it works. And I thought that with Christ, where Pilate's just amazed at the silence and all the things that are said against Jesus, and he stands there in silence, and he just stands, knowing that all of these things are untrue, and the meekness and power under control is the first thing we see in Jesus and how he empties himself. He models for us the need for silence amidst shame. Whenever there is shame in your world, whenever there is guilt and things brought against you, I, rem- I would just remind you of Christ and how he sat in silence and took this thing because he knew was in front of him. So the first thing is meekness, power under control. And then we get to the second story in the crucifixion. And this is 15 uh, all the way down to 23. And in the middle of this scenario, we meet a man named Barabbas. And Barabbas was a bad dude. I mean, the guy was a thug. The guy didn't really fit in anywhere. He was a rebel rouser. He was a murderer. He tried to lead an insurrection against Rome, a violent one. And they knew who this guy was. Verse 15, now at the feast of the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd anyone prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Barabbas was well known. They would have known him from beginning to end. He would have been on all the news channels. He would have been most wanted. He was on death row when he's with Pilate. He was going to his execution. And before he goes, he is standing next to the king of kings on this platform with Pilate. And so when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus, him, up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him. This is speaking of Jesus. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Even worse, later in the story, the people answered Pilate, Not only do we want him killed, his blood will be on us and our children for doing this, and we are okay with that. The injustice here was multiple. One, it was the fact that he was categorized in the same place and in the same pedigree as Barabbas. Both were on death row. Both were there. One was there because you're supposed to be there. The other was there and didn't deserve to be there. The thug, the murderer, the rebellion leader, a man with no remorse. Yeah, we get why he's there. We get why he's on death row. Jesus, who's been beaten to a pulp so far, standing next to him, what on earth has he done? And we look at this, and I'm reminded again of Philippians 2. He empties himself to the point of obedience. Why? Because as one pastor says, 
God was going to treat Jesus like he should treat Barabbas. And God was going to treat Barabbas like he should treat Jesus. Isn't that crazy? He's standing there in the midst of this crowd, and the crowd's cheering for him to be crucified. And Jesus knows what's at stake. He knows the shame of unridicule of what he's been through so far. And he knows that Barabbas is there next to him. And here's the crazy thing about all of this is that Jesus is standing there full well knowing what's in front of him. And he is okay with Barabbas being free. And Jesus is going to say, I'm going to stand in Barabbas' place. Here's the thing I love about Jesus. It reminds me of his emptying here at the cross. He loved Barabbas. He loved him enough to set him free. And I think, but, but, didn't, you, but didn't you know, like when you set him free, he's not going to accept you. He's not going to come back and say thank you and, and, and worship you and, and, and get into a relationship with you. That's not going to happen in Barabbas' life. All that we know about Barabbas was that he went on and continued to do evil things. That's, we don't know what happened to him, but we, don't, we sure don't know that he turned and, 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 and accepted Christ. We don't even see that he looked back at Christ. It's as if he's been released and he's like, yes, I'm free to do it again. I'm free to sin all the more. And God loved him in spite of it and releases him. I was struck by this scene all this week. Wednesday, I, I, I don't know why, I just, I've, I've gone back to this passage again and again and again. And it's as if God was putting me in Barabbas' place. And I'm chained next to Jesus, and, and, he's, and he's looking at me, and he's saying, Joel, I, I, I want you to know, I love you, and I'm willing to die for you. But, but God, but I, don't, I don't deserve it. My track record, my past, my, my week with you has not been stellar. My, my commitment to you. The shame that I have because of the sin in my life and in front of you, I deserve to be here. I look at Barabbas, and if I was Barabbas, I'd be thinking, man, I have every right to be here. I'm the one that did it. I'm the one that sinned. I'm the one that caused all the pain. And I turned to Christ this week and studying this thing, and I said, but, but I'm the one who's doing these things. I'm the one that deserves this. And as if Christ looks back, and he says, I know. But I love you enough to set you free. And many in this room, I'm just, I feel like some in this room have a hard time in that space where you are free. You have a hard time accepting a free gift of Jesus. No, Jesus, I'm going to clean myself up. I'm going to get it right. I'm going to take these chains and I'm going to work it around so that I can get out of these myself. I'm going to take that sin that I struggle with all the time. I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to get out of it because I can do it. I can do it. Watch me. I'll show you. I can do it. I can be a good person. I can live the life I'm supposed to live. I can save my marriage. I can save my kids. I can do all the right stuff. Trust me, I can do it. I'm a really good, disciplined person. I can get out of my own chains. I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. And God would look at us as he looks at Barabbas and he says, no, that's not how it works. 
You can't discipline yourself enough to get out of every single sin. You can't do enough devotions to earn your way into heaven. You can't do anything. The only thing we can do is accept the free gift of Jesus Christ who looks at us and says, I will go to the cross on your behalf, not because you deserve it, but just because I love you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we got all cleaned up and did all the church games. Well, at least I'm better than so-and-so at church. Well, at least, I mean, if I'm doing all these good things at church, I'm serving the church, so shouldn't they just honor me because I'm, I'm doing all these things for the church? And we can play all those crazy, can I just say, foolish church games. I was going to choose another word, but I won't. Foolish church games that, that we can kind of get ourselves in this mode of like doing all the right stuff for all the semi-good reasons and forgetting the gospel alone is what will save you. And I was sitting there this week, and I know this is a rant, but I was sitting there this week, and I was just like, God, it's not fair. You don't deserve it. You shouldn't be up here with him. You shouldn't be anywhere on the stage with him. And I look at my life, you shouldn't have anything to do with my sin. You shouldn't have anything to do with the shame that I bring upon myself. And he says, I don't care. I love you. I love you and I want you to be free. I was struck with the scene so much that it brings me back. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, yes, there was. If there's any comfort from his love, yes, there was. Any participation in the spirit, yes, there was. Any affection and sympathy, Yes, that was all part of it this week, God. That was part of this journey. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. If there's any of that in your life, he's saying to us, to us as families and believers who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if there's any of that in your life, here's what I'm asking you to do. I want you to have the same mind as me. And I want you to empty yourself for other people. It gets worse. The mockery and the ugliness of the soldiers in verses 27 to 30. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put, on his clothes, and put his clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. The king of the universe is mocked by these low-level soldiers. And he didn't say a word. The mockery, the humiliation that comes through this, the shame that we brought upon him, the pain, yes, but the emotional scarring of something like that that is mocking your mere existence, mocking his divinity, calling him king and then giving him mock props and saying, look, look, we've got a king here. Let's put a crown of thorns on him. Let's give him this fake rod and let's just all bow before him and fake worship the king. And on the outside, we look, and we're like, man, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why aren't you retaliating? Why aren't you saying something? You're God. And he doesn't. And then we get to the last, and I believe the, the purpose of the crucifixion. In verses 32 and on. 
The purpose of the crucifixion, I believe, is summed up well by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who says this, the meaning of the cross lies not only in physical suffering, but especially in rejection and shame. You see, the physical alone, I mean, we don't have time to get into that, and there's kids in the room, so we can't get into all the details when it comes to the physical pain. But we have to address what the gospel authors wanted us to address, and that is the rejection and the shame that would come to Jesus Christ at the cross. And as I was looking at this passage, I've always thought, you know, yes, yeah, the cross, yes, it's the crucifixion, yes, he died on our behalf. We've all seen the jewelry, we wear the crosses, we have the tattoos, the whole thing. But I wondered why the cross, of all deaths, why this one? You ever thought about that? Like of all the deaths that Christ had to die, why this one, why this time, and why this particular apparatus? And I'm not going to say this is gospel. I'm not going to say that this is like 100%. But let me just kind of offer my humble opinion as far as why it was this death. And it had to be the cross. And it had to be a crucifixion death. And I want to kind of give this to you in three, two or three different ways. One, it had to be the crucifixion because of the Jewish faith and what they believed about the crucifixion. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. They, they would see... Any criminal, any person who has sinned, if they were to be hung on a tree as Christ was, that person would be seen not only as a criminal, but cursed by God. And in the Jewish faith that they were cursed by God, you didn't want anything to do with them, you wouldn't want anywhere to be near them, but yet, in their faith, they had the decency to put in there you shall not defile, or he says, you, you, you must take him down and bury him the same day. You can't let him be up there longer than a day because for crying out loud, he's a human being. You've you got to respect at least the humanity side of him. In the Jewish faith, it also would preserve humanity by the whippings that, that Jesus got. Forty stripes may be given him, 25-3, Deuteronomy, but not one, but not more, lest if one should go on and beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. The reason that they chose 40 lashes and not more was because he's a human being. To take that away from them, they saw as a very strong thing. And so they would give the dignity of being a human and not degrade his body enough through the whippings that they would do this. And Christ took that on our behalf before he even went to the cross. And so he was cursed by God in the Jewish faith. And they would say that he'd put on the cross. This is proof, they would say, that this man was cursed by God and this is proof that he is not a God. This is proof that he is not deity. Therefore, he is free to be full of shame and anguish and pain on our behalf. This is Jesus. This is the Son of God on our behalf, cursed by God. 
But then you have the Romans. And the Romans knew about the humanity factor. They knew what it meant to treat somebody inhumanely. The fact of the matter is, the Romans didn't care about lack of grace in this area. When we look at the Jewish faith, they at least knew that there was some human being here. When the Romans got to the crucifixion, they perfected it. They made sure that this would be the most inhumane treatment that you could ever give to someone. You wanted the world to know this person is not even a human being anymore. The Romans would only in extreme cases use the cross for executing people of high positions and even would never allow their own citizens to be crucified. And the reason they wouldn't allow their citizens to be crucified because it was seen as too inhuman. But for the common criminal, for the rebel rouser against Rome, for the ones that came against the system, they said, no, this is the perfect, this is the perfect execution. We want this to be seen as a mere animal up on a cross. There was a case a while back um, known as the Matthew Shepard case. And in this case, there was a man who uh, had a homosexual affinity. And it was probably one of the first cases um, about this kind of abuse. And in the description of how they found him. One of the ladies that found him said that he was on a post, kind of like a scarecrow, less like a scarecrow, more like we do in our farms where we kill a coyote, we post it to the pole, and we leave the carcass on the pole to remind people to stay away, that we have the power. And that's how they found his body. Inhuman. Inhumane. And yet Christ, here in this Picture is on the cross in an inhumane way for our benefit, degrading him past human likeness. It gets worse in the fact that paintings and movies kind of put a cloth on Jesus. But the truth is, most public executions, they would be naked. They wanted the person to be seen as inhuman. They wanted them to be shamed. The cross not only would be this place where you would hung naked because you've been beaten and crucified in physical pain beyond anything we can imagine. The cross would normally take about three to four days to do its job. And so you'd be on that cross for three to four days. And it was not just the pain that he endured, it was the shame. It was the degradation of the whole thing. Joel Green, another author, says this, executed publicly, situated at major crossroads or on a well-trafficked area devoid of of clothing, left to be eaten by birds and beasts. Victims of crucifixion were subject to optima, unmitigated and vicious ridicule. He says they were the ones that were seeing them every single day. They knew this was part of this. Optimal, unmitigated, vicious ridicule was part of this, this whole scenario. And they wanted it to be seen as this. God knew this. Jesus knew this. Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 53, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of sons of men. He had no form or godliness that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. To the Romans, they wanted him to be seen as this. 
And so to the Jews, the crucifixion had to be there for the crucifixion to be cursed by God, which is horrible to think of that being a state. Secondly, he had to be at the cross because he wanted this to be an inhumane version treatment of what Christ would have to go through. Powerful, powerful. But lastly, I truly believe it had to be the crucifixion for us today, for us who put our faith in Jesus Christ. It had to be for us to see the shame and the ridicule of Jesus Christ, to be our mind and our example. Because Jesus says all along the way, through the beatings, through the standing next to Barabbas, to the crucifixion, to the shame and degradation, he says all the time, it's fine. It's fine, Father, I trust you. I will be obedient to you. It's fine, Father, I got this. To us who are below, he continues to say, you're free. Go. This is mine to carry and not yours. And again, just like standing next to him on the stage with Barabbas, we, we, we don't know what to do with that. I deserve this. I should be the one there. I deserve to be nothing. I deserve the cross. And every single moment of our life, Christ comes back and says, I know you deserve it. I know. But I love you enough to pay the price for you. But God, I deserve the shame. And Jesus says, give me your shame. I'll take it. But God, I deserve to be divorced. I deserve the shame that comes with that. I'm the one that made the mistake. I'm the one that's supposed to be paying for this. And he looks at them and he says, give me that. I'll take that. I'll take that pain because I want you to be free. I deserve to be hated because of the choices I've made. I deserve to be that person who gets no recognition. And he looks at us and says, I'll take that. Give it to me. Give your sins to me. Give your sins to me. And Jesus is saying that even today. Give me all of that. And that's where we find ourselves in Christianity. And we don't know what to do with it. It's that awkward place where Christ says, give me all of that. And let's say we're brave enough to do that. We give him all of our sin. We place it on the cross. And we say, this is yours. Take it. Somehow, some way, make good out of it. And we watch as he's beaten and taken to the cross. And then we have to stand there in a weird place where we stand there and we say, we've given all of our sins to him and he walks off to the cross on our behalf. And there's a silence gap void that we're standing in the middle of that we don't do well with you, with, as human beings. We don't do well with that gap of freedom. We don't know what to do. But God, I, I can fix it. I promise I'll get better. I promise I'll come to church more. I promise I'll, I'll fix this. I'll get better at whatever it is you want me to fix. And he's already gone and off to the cross on our behalf. And he looks at us as sons and daughters and says, just keep giving it to me. That's why I came. That's why I died. This isn't for you to do a better job. This is me. 
Jesus says to them there in the, in, in, in the times of the Bible, I've got this. He says to us today, I've got this. He says to our kids and our grandkids and our future generations, I got this because the answer is always will be Jesus. No matter what, the answer always and will be Jesus. Your greatest struggle on earth is not saving your marriage. Your greatest struggle on earth is not your kid's safety and your kid's security. As much and as hard as you try to wrap your kids in these little bubbles, it's not your greatest struggle. Your greatest struggle on earth is not even your ability to play church. Your your struggle on earth is not these games that try and measure up and outplay one another morally. Your greatest struggle and your greatest battle while here on earth is truly to believe that the gospel is enough to save you and that the gospel is enough to change you to be more like him and less about all your duties and devotions and work and ethic, and I'm just going to get all the right things right. The struggle for us always, Community Bible Church, always will be to believe that the gospel is enough and we can stand in that silence and watch him walk to the cross and we can do one of two things. One, we can chase after him and say, no, 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 it's me. Or we can do as any good father would want us to do, live live as free children because of what he's offered to you. You couldn't handle the cross. You won't ever be able to handle the cross. Only he could do the cross. So our job is simply to live in adoration and in freedom of the one who went on our behalf. To say thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for freedom. May I never go back to the way I was. May I always live in the freedom that you've given to us. It's always Jesus. It's always going to be Jesus. It's his blood that saved you. It's his blood that secured you. It's his blood that will change you. It's his blood that will humble you. And it's the blood that will shake you out of every single sin that you have. It's always going to be Jesus. You are never, ever going to be enough. Let me just put it out to you again. You are never, ever going to be enough for Jesus without his sacrificial blood in your life. I don't care how many church games you want to play, it's not going to matter because Christ is the only one who saves. He is the only one who changes us. It's still Jesus. In 2019, nothing's changed. It's still Jesus. It's always going to be Jesus, and it's never going to stop being Jesus. To which I say, thank you to a God who saves us, takes the shame that we endure on a regular basis, the pain that we carry on a regular basis, the sins that you struggle with on a constant basis that nobody knows about, those things that you have a hard time giving up. He knows them all. He wants them all. He says, just give them to me. Just give them to me. Let me help you walk in freedom. Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not acquire equality with God, something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This morning as we close, um, can I just remind you again of Calvary. 
It's a big word we use here in Christian world that basically means the cross. That he went to the cross on our behalf. That he, that he suffered and died so that we may live. And fixed this thing of the curse upon us forever. And our response to this is not to make ourselves better as if we could. Our response is simply found in Philippians 2, that we would have the same mind as Jesus Christ, that we would empty ourselves out for other people, that we would see them as valuable enough that Jesus would die for them. And not just church family people, right? I'm talking about those in the world that want nothing to do with Jesus. They would remind them that it's Christ and Christ alone. Let me pray for us that this would be our focus heading out of here this morning. That our eyes and our minds and our hearts would be drawn back to Calvary. That we would praise him for who he is. Let me pray for you this morning. God, this week has been um, humbling. This week has been great reminder personally is studying this passage that you want my shame you want my anger you want my weaknesses and failings and I can't do anything to make it up to you I can't somehow make myself a better person enough to match your gift can't do it So instead, you say, I don't want it. I've already accomplished it on the cross. I don't want it that way. I want you raw as you are, sin and all. Don't worry about cleaning yourself up. I want you to come to me, the one who died on your behalf for your sins. And I will make you clean. For those who have a relationship with Jesus Christ, he's saying to us again and again, come back, come back, come back. You've wandered too far off. You've tried to do it on your own and it's exhausting and I get it. You were never supposed to live that way. You're supposed to live in the freedom and the son of Jesus Christ. So come back. Drink from that living water that I promised you. That well that won't run dry that I promised you. And as you focus your attention on me and the cross, I love you. I want you to be free. That's why I died. Don't think of the words of Paul, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has tricked you that you started so well and then you've gone back to slavery. We are free because of Jesus Christ. May we Praise him and thank him this morning for that free gift offered to us. God, we love you. I don't understand it. I'm humbled by it this week, wrecked by it this week. May we come back to the beginning, to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Here I pray.